and we're live. Welcome everyone to another episode of the two Abdullahs. This is a special series that we're doing that's coming to an end, soon to come to an end. Uh, maybe this will be the last episode. And this is, of course, the epileptic prophet. So if you've missed out on the first five parts, you might want to go back and check them out. Each part is an independent discussion on specific issues in Muhammad's life that reflect what was going on in his brain. And to be frank, this is one of the most powerful explanations that lets you understand from a secular perspective or from an agnostic perspective what is the best way to explain his behavior, what was going on in his head. So if you're new here, welcome. You know, Do join us for the next two hours. We're going to be going through some really interesting um, stuff there. And uh, over to you, Abdullah Gondal, for part six. Hello, and welcome back to Epileptic Prophet, part six of this series. Hopefully, this might be the last episode. We'll go through a lot of very, very interesting things. A quick uh, overview of what we're going to go through today. We're going to cover a section over Muhammad's delusions, his weird delusions where he'd be seeing angels running around and people flying in the sky and whatnot. Then we'll cover the uh, million-dollar question regarding Quran and hypergraphia. How did Muhammad create the Quran? Is the Quran a... Uh, a product of his epilepsy did that contribute to him creating the quran was epilepsy causing him compulsive rhyming and so on and so forth he'll go over his violence how people who suffer from temporal epilepsy start soliciting violence have a violent nature get irritated if they're challenged uh we're also then gonna go over a very very important issue is this ocd uh which is going to be very eye-opening and then we have uh, what was shocking to me and this over the last week, I added a lot more points to this section, the famous cases section. We're going to go over about 40 famous cases ranging from sitting politicians to chief justices. Then there are some ex-presidents of the world's leading superpowers. Uh, there's artists, uh, famous musicians, authors. And honestly, your view about what mental illness is will drastically change uh, by the end of this episode. Uh, and then we're going to also then refute a epilepsy paper written by Dr. Hassan Aziz regarding Muhammad not being epileptic. We'll point out the uh, critical lies in that paper or points that completely defeat his own argument. And then we'll get to some miscellaneous points and then the conclusion. And we might be taking calls uh, during this episode. And after, we're going to also probably have a discussion period depending on how much time we've left. And if you guys want, we might have a separate episode after this where we just sit down and discuss all the weird things we noticed in the series, different things that connect, like some things you mentioned in part one may tie into something in part six and so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, with that aside, let's get into it. So we're going to start off with uh, Dr. Ali Sina explaining what narcissism is and how Muhammad uh, was narcissistic. Uh, this is going to be a six-minute clip, but pay attention. He brings out some really, really interesting points. And then after he's done, I'll point out some things that he might have missed out and that might help you connect the dots. Let's get to it. Narcissism is a personality disorder that revolves around a pattern of grandiosity, need of admiration, and sense of entitlement. Often individuals feel overly important and will exaggerate achievement and will accept and often they 
and often demand praise and admiration despite worthy achievements. Mm. To some extent, we are all narcissists. It helps us to have a positive self-esteem about ourselves mm. and a positive outlook at the world. That's self why self-confidence. It gives us self-confidence. So without it, you you will have a low self-esteem and other disorders can can disappear can appear. So to some, that's why it is very important uh, to to understand what is malignant narcissism, because a little bit narcissism we all have and we must all have. That's a positive narcissism. Malignant narcissism is a disorder. It's like blood pressure. We all should have blood pressure, but when it becomes excessive, it becomes a, a, a disorder, a disease. disease. Uh, there are nine characteristics that have been decided, defined as what a person should have the narcissist. If five of them falls into that category, if you fall, if you have five of those uh, characteristics, then you are uh, diagnosed as a narcissist, as a malignant narcissist. Here, let me read you these nine. He feels grandiose and self-important, such as exaggerate his achievements and his importance and uh, even lies about what he has done and his powers and things like that. Number two is, he's obsessed with fantasies of unlimited success, fame, fearsome power or omnipotence, unequal brilliance, etc. Number three is firmly convinced that he or she is unique. Number four, requires excessive, excessive admiration, adulation, attention, and affirmation. Or failing that, he wants to be feared. Number five, feels entitled, expects unreasonable or special and favorable priority treatment, demands automatic and full obedience without providing any evidence for his authority. Number six is interpersonally exploitative, uses others, manipulates others for his own end. Number seven is devoid of empathy, is unable and unwilling to identify or acknowledge that other people have feelings and have needs. Number eight is constantly envious of others, while at the same time he thinks that others are envious of him. And number nine is arrogant, has haughty behavior. All these characteristics I discovered that fall define Muhammad perfectly. You need only five of them to be malignant, to be diagnosed as a malignant narcissist. Hmm. Muhammad had all nine of them. Verse 40, chapter 33. He says, he claimed to that he is anointed messenger of God and a seal of prophet. Well, that's what we know already about that. He refused to provide any evidence for that claim. There is no evidence that he said, trying to explain. He expected people to accept what he said. And if he didn't, he would wage war of them or kill them. That attitude, the claim itself is not narcissistic. Okay. But the attitude 
providing no evidence for your claim and expecting others to accept. And if they don't order, they don't accept, you must, they must be killed because they are worthless creatures. That attitude is narcissism. Verse 21, chapter 33. He calls himself Khairul Khalq, the best of creation. Right. Verse 253, chapter 2. He calls himself exalted above all prophets in degrees, superior to Jesus, all of the prophets prior to him, in degrees. In chapter 17, verse 55, he calls himself the preferred one. And in chapter 21, verse 107, he claims to be the mercy of God on all mankind. Now, if you study the life of Muhammad, and you see how ruthlessly he exterminated people whom he raided. He didn't even give them a chance to defend themselves. He went in the middle of the night and uh, attacked them when they were asleep. Uh, they were not prepared and uh, brutally killed them and then looted everything they had and took their wives and children and raped them and allowed his men to rape them. He says, they are your right hand positions. It's also in the Iraq. You don't find any mercy in the actions of Muhammad. And at the same time, despite lack of achievements here, despite worthy achievements, he has these high praises about himself. All right. So that was quite a lot. And he brought up some really interesting points. And he said uh, that Muhammad displayed signs of narcissism. And he said that everybody is a little narcissistic just, just from an uh, evolutionary perspective to protect yourself, you know. Uh, but Muhammad did have narcissism. And some things that pop into my mind that are part of the Islamic faith that he might not have uh, pointed out to you guys in that uh, video. For example, saying peace be upon him or sallallahu alayhi wasallam every time you hear his name. This was in fact a thing that was repeat, repetitively instilled in my mind in the mosque in Pakistan over and over again. In fact, it's a bad thing and very disrespectful if you hear Muhammad's name and you don't say that. Uh, Muhammad returns your salam. If, if, even if he's passed away, he returns your salam. If you send him the rood, this is weird debate that leads to uh, between uh, these uh, Barelvis and uh, Salafis where if Muhammad is alive in his grave or not. Uh, then Muhammad led all the prophets in prayer in Jerusalem. Uh, blasphemy killings the idea in itself that muhammad's the chosen one he's the best example for all mankind to follow in surah 33 verse 21 uh, like he said in surah noon or right after he gets accused that he's crazy the next verse no you're the best of creation um he then says that uh, he's a seal of the prophets like he's the last one and then he's like uh he uses his authority to exploit others you know like all the time for his uh, his ideology, he believes like if you don't listen to Muhammad, you burn in hell, right? Uh, and then the whole idea of the surah like it, where my book is so amazing that you can't even bring three lines like it, uh, traces its origin from Muhammad's narcissistic perception of his own ideology. Uh, but with that in mind, uh, these are some really interesting points that come up uh, when you think about how Muhammad's narcissism was. Uh, with that aside, we will start moving on uh, 
to the next slide. Just, um, just to show an example of um, what he is talking about. This is in a hadith that talks about, um, you know, one of those night raids. So there's there's a bunch of them, right? This is one that they attacked uh, Hawazin with Abu Bakr during mm. the time of the Prophet. They arrived in an oasis belonging to Beni Fazara. During the last part of the night, we attacked at dawn, raiding the people of the oasis and killed them nine or seven households. So this was a common practice um, yeah. that they used to do. Anyhow. That's night raids, yeah. And I mean, another thing was there's a hadith just like this where uh, Muhammad's men would attack and kill kids and women. Yes. And the Sahabi yeah. asked, and Muhammad says explicitly, yeah, they're cut yeah, children, so their blood's okay. Exactly. So they're kind of collateral damage. But yeah, that's uh, that's interesting as well. Uh, but, anyways, we're going to get back to the slides now. Uh, back to, uh, to, we're going to keep that narcissism point in mind because it's going to pop up again and again. As we go on, but we're going to come back to the slides to his delusions because we're in the delusion section where we last left off. So uh, we learned that Muhammad had his chest open quite a few times. First was when he was a child. They're suspecting this happened a couple of times with his foster mother. And that's the whole reason they returned him thinking he's afflicted with insanity or demon possessed or something. Then it happened at the age of 10. Then it happened in the cave of Hirad, the first revelation or the day before it. And then it happened... Uh, when he went up to heaven to see Allah, the Miraj. So yeah, here we see on the Hadith where I was in uh, at the house between sleeping and being awake. So he's kind of semi-asleep. I heard somebody saying, the one in the middle of the three, I was brought a vessel of gold containing zamzam water. So my chest was split to here. Qatada said, what does that mean? He said to the lowest part of his stomach. Uh, so my heart was removed and washed with zamzam water. And the point is like, why is this repeating? Why does Allah need to keep washing it, keep opening it, keep washing it? Like, do it once, man. Like, what kind of surgeon are you that you have to keep doing patch jobs after your first bad surgery? Right? Like, it doesn't make sense for Allah to keep doing this again and again. It makes more sense, like Dr. Dedek described in the beginning, in part one we saw. This is actually a precursor, an aura to a seizure. It's epigastric rising and accompanied with visceral pain and Muhammad just thinks that he's been cut open by angels. Uh, but yeah, this hallucination uh, repeats itself quite a few times. Just another one here. Uh, moving on to the next slide. And we have a green screen covering the horizon. So this is interesting because colors uh, is actually a case later on in the, in the cases we'll see where a patient sees flashes of green color covering everywhere whichever he looked and that's interesting that muhammad saw the green screen covering the horizon it's kind of also funny or if you have a green screen you know you can do these special effects in the sky so allah was just showing him this is all just green screen bro it's not real <laughs> it's islam predicted green screens bro <laughs> uh, all right let's go to the next one the next slide is pretty interesting so uh, this one is about the seal of the Prophet on the back of Muhammad, a mole, a red tumor uh, that was actually between his shoulder blades and stuff. And Muhammad thought that this was somehow a sign of God. And that's what I'm trying to get to here, the delusional, the narcissistic idea that his body bodily defects are being worshipped and adored by his followers. Now, let's see what it actually was. In the left side, we're going to start. Sayyid al-Khudri about the seal of the Prophet. It was a protrusion of skin on his back. Then the next one underneath him says, uh, it was 
between his shoulders and it was like a zir al-hajjah, meaning the button of a small tent or the egg of a partridge. Uh, then the next one says, uh, it was between his shoulders blade, it was fleshy and red, resembling the egg of a pigeon. Another one says it was the size of a pigeon's egg. So Muhammad has a tumor on the back, a growth on his back between his shoulder blades. And it was a cluster surrounded by till mold, which appeared to be like a wart. So Muhammad has got a deformity and people started perceiving it as something divine. Now go back to part one when Dr. Ramachandran was telling us that temporal epilepsy will cause everything you have to take on a religious weird meaning. It makes no sense for God to give you a seal of prophethood or a weird lesion or these kind of deformities. I mean, this is a pretty extreme case of them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's nothing like that. But it's it's funny that actually I've also seen cases where uh, in India, right, uh, kids born with weird anomalies or numerous fingers or more fingers or hands, they start getting worshipped as gods, whereas this is just genetic uh, mutations and stuff, right? But it's interesting how people who are ignorant can interpret just bodily defects as some divine underlying reason, which makes no sense. And that just alludes to their uh, delusional thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the next up is the slide, which we have is going to get a little gross. Uh, so get giving you guys a heads up the holy spittle. What am I talking about? So as weird as Muhammad was in his twisted mind, somehow, sometimes he would tell his people that if they rubbed his spit and his used water on their faces and chest, it will give them glad tidings or blessings. And so we're going to just kind of read this. And this is just to affirm the guy was weird. It's this culty. He's delusional about his own bodily fluids at this point. And he's attaching divine blessings to bodily excrement, which just makes no sense. Uh, so here we have, uh, <laughs> I was in the company of the messenger of Allah, and he was sitting in a place uh, between Mecca and Medina, and Bilal was there. And a desert Arab came to him and said, Muhammad, fulfill your promise that you made with me. So Allah's messenger said to him, accept glad tidings. Thereupon the desert Arab said, you shower glad tidings upon me very much. Then Allah's messenger turned towards Abu Musa and Bilal, seemingly in a state of annoyance and said, verily, he has rejected glad tidings, but you, you two should accept them. We said we have readily accepted them. Then Allah's messenger called for a cup of water and washed his hands in that and face too and put the saliva in it and then said, drink out of it and pour it over your faces and over your chest and gladden yourselves. They took a hold of the cup and did as Allah's messenger had commanded them to do. Thereupon, Umay Salama called from behind the veil saying, please spare some water for me as well. So these people, is this... It's just disgusting, weird, delusional thinking about your bodily fluids. On the right side, we have the Prophet asked for a tumbler containing water and washed both his hands and face in it and then threw a mouthful of water in the tumbler and said to both of us, drink from the tumbler and pour some of its water on your faces and chests. So he's spitting in the water and like, okay, now drink it and rub it on your chests. Uh, the people are fighting over his used ablution water. And, and on the right side, it says, Allah's messenger would spat, the spittle would fall in the hand of one of them who would rub it on his face and skin. And uh, this is just bizarre kinds of delusional kind of thinking regarding bodily excrements that just 
it's just hard to justify from a logical perspective or even a theological one. Like it's it's hard to why would God put blessings in his his bodily fluids? Like what's the point? Right? Mm -hmm. Like Yeah, it's it's interesting in the context of I mean, we've we've heard these before and you've actually pointed out some of these things before. We even got uh, both of us kicked out of a group, <laughs> a Muslim group, I think. But in context of like what you just, what, you know, in, in context of the narcissism, it actually makes sense. Yeah. It's like, I'm special. Like, like of course I'm special, right? And mm -hmm. the, the part about, you, you know, the part, the, the one thing that shows here is how mad he got at this guy. It's like, yeah, I'm giving you blessings, so you better accept it. And the guy's like, listen, like you're giving too much blessings. It's like the guy was getting annoyed with him or whatever. He got <laughs> mad at the guy. He's like, it's like, well, how dare you reject my blessings? It's seems like he was full of himself. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. I mean, the next slide is kind of even more gross. I just I'm seeing the comments here, and they're already talking about it. Some of them have been predicting it. It's the holy <laughs> urine and poop of Muhammad, and that's just gross. When I came across this, I'm like, oh, this is like what the hell cult, right? Uh, so on the left side we have Islam Web. I don't know if you guys can see it clearly, but I'll read it for you. There's a hadith stating that there's a companion who drank the urine or blood of the prophet. So it says, uh, Abdullah took the blood and drank it. It was after cupping of Muhammad. And then Muhammad uh, uh, says in another narration, supplicated to Allah for him not to be touched by the hellfire and wiped his head. And then these kind of scholars think this is an authentic hadith. So a guy drank Muhammad's blood like a vampire sahabi. And this is mm -hmm. uh, a sahih hadith according to some. According on the authority of Umayyah bin Turqiyah, she said the Prophet used to urinate in a container and put it under his bed. Once he urinated and put it under his bed, and when he came back and he found the container empty, then he asked the Abyssinian woman called Baraka, who used to serve him about the urine which was in the container, she told him that she had drunk it. It's from Bayhaki. In another narration, the Prophet supplicated to Allah Almighty to grant her health. Consequently, she did not suffer from any illness. Oh, this is Hadith with similar narrations, and he blesses her. So the point is that instead of rebuking them, he after that prays for them to be like saved and be blessed with health, like as if he thinks himself that his bodily fluids do possess some magical healing abilities or something. On the right side, we see another Muslim website, and they talk about uh, the, the same kind of Hadith about where is the bowl, the lady drank the bowl, and then there's another one, uh, and then they go on and on about, you know, the the person's uh, grading of the hadith, the type of narrations, and a little bit more on about that. Uh, but the point to take away from this is this guy has some weird delusions. Like, none of this makes sense. It's hard to justify theologically, unless your theology is so naive and childlike that, I mean, it is from the 7th century. It's absurd anybody expressing such ideas is just delusional so full of himself uh but no these are scholars who've graded them these are fatwa websites these are not my my fatwas these are written by scholars uh yeah and it gets worse and then there's the next slide before we get to that, i just want to yeah. comment on um something that kind of sticks out is kind of weird here which is the bowl of urine he left it under his bed like that's that's weird like, isn't that something well, you throw out right away? You wouldn't so, sleep with it under there, right? From what I know, like in history, uh, most cultures, like in 
in the British area, European cultures, the four or five hundred years ago, this was actually common to keep bowls because you didn't have the facility to go out at night. And it was kind of hard to in the middle of the night to go out. It's dangerous. So they would keep a bowl for convenience and then they just empty it out next morning. But yeah. Oh, in the morning. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Right on. So now we're at the next. So this is his holy sweat. So, I mean, Prophet would lay down on the leather mat and sweat it and people would collect the sweat and then they'd put it in a perfume bottle and the prophet would be like, oh my God, my sweat is so nice. You guys rub it on your bodies as perfume and he would smile and pray for them. And I mean, at this point, like it's just weird that the people are also enabling his delusions too, where they're kind of telling him, yeah, yeah, we'll do this. And like, we're fighting for your spit. And he's like, oh yeah, you know, maybe my spit is, is holy, is, 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 you know, beautiful and stuff like this. One time he spat and all these idols fix it and all that. And, you know, so all sorts of weird. Also, the, also when you, um, when you have a baby, he took some of the date, chewed it up with the saliva and put, put in the baby's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, some of those things are like cultural, like some of them things, those cultural things have like, ideas where like passing on antibodies, immunity, sharing these kind of things. Uh, I mean, like the, in the, in, I read that in the Arab lands back in the day, because it was so dry, people would, uh, would like give, like, you know how birds take water and give it to their children. Yeah. It was common back then in certain demographics. But if we read it today, that this guy was spouting water in some kid's mouth, <laughs> just weird, right? So we have to keep in mind certain uh, historical context yeah. when we are discussing these things. But definitely some of these things just don't make sense in any context. And yeah. in fact, even those people are like, this is not normal. This is anomalous, even in 7th century Arabia, mm -hmm. you know. But anyways, uh, let's move on to the next slide. This one is, a, is one of my favorites because... Uh, the prof person asks, who informed the prophet about the jinns at the <laughs> night when they hear, heard the Quran? So he said, your father told me that it was a tree that told the prophet. So there was a, there was a tree in the Isnad. <laughs> I just want to uh, quickly shout out uh, Zagros Oskan. Uh, apologize if I didn't say a name properly for the super chat, $20 and $10. Thank you so much for your kind donations. Um, is there any evidence that could point to Muhammad being manipulated in a really smart way by people who went to extremes by flattering him slash drinking, using his bodily fluids? I think that's a really good question. It is, it is a very interesting question. And a lot of the end part of Muhammad's life around his death and the whole Shia-Sunni split is very interesting. When I was reading up on it, like there's hadith in Sunni literature where there was called a big Thursday or some one big day where Muhammad is about to write something to tell people what to do after his death. And then Omar and a couple of people said he's delirious, like he's not in his senses. And Muhammad got mad. No, I'm the prophet. I'm always in my senses. And Abbas was crying. This day was the biggest calamity. And then this other thing was that Muhammad was uh, was drinking this medicine and stuff. So again, were those people trying to use him at the end of his life to get what they wanted? I.e. Abu Bakr wanted to, you know, get the successorship via Ali not getting it. Uh, there is an argument that could be made in a way, you know. Shias make this argument all the time. They say that Abu Bakr and Omar and them, they rush to bury the prophet. Sorry, while he Ali was burying the prophet, they were already, you know, meddling the next the politics. Yeah, getting exactly. you know, getting the next leader involved. Uh, and selected. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing is uh, the people's 
uh, Muhammad married Aisha Abu Bakr became caliph, right? Then Muhammad married Hafsa's Omar's daughter, I believe. Then Omar became the second caliph. Then Osman married two of Muhammad's daughter. He's the third caliph. And then Ali married Fatima Muhammad's daughter. He's the fourth caliph. So it's kind of funny where how like the politics, the kind of intermingling ties into that. So I don't know if it was a lot of family dynamics, manipulation going into all of that. Yeah. Uh, could have been. I mean, for sure, people converted to Islam because of the benefits, and I mean, we know after the final mm -hmm. conquest of Makkah, or before the final conquest of Makkah, Amr ibn al-As and you know a few other people converted. Uh, Khalid bin Walid, I believe, was another one. Mm -hmm. So there was obviously a political change happening, and oh, people realized that hey, I want to get on this team. There's narrations in Ibn Asaka I was reading where Abu Sufyan, when he went to Muhammad's tent before he came into Mecca, Muhammad literally almost forcefully had him convert and abu sufyan's like i don't want to but like he almost said you want your head chopped off or you want to convert to islam that's what's basically what told him uh but yeah uh anyways <laughs> kind of getting off topic there let's get back to it so yeah the tree so wait there was a genie and then the tree saw the genie and then the tree told muhammad that there's a genie here hearing the quran and then Muhammad told us that this is what happened. That makes no sense. Like, like I was talking to trees already right from the get-go, from his first revelation, those talking rocks. So it's kind of that these things stick for them, right? Like, it doesn't go away. Uh, but anyways, next uh, slide we're going to go to is talking cows and wolves. Uh, I'm just going to quickly read that. One... So we're done with the narcissism now? Oh, it might pop up once in a while. But this is kind of like yeah. delusional narcissistic uh, okay. section here. Uh, here he talks about people that talking cow and then uh, there's a talking uh, what else talking wolf as well and then uh, Omar and Abu Bakr believe in the existence of this talking wolf and cow and it's a weird hadith we're gonna go through the section a little faster because it's just gonna be Muhammad just being just being stupid and bizarre and just psychotic or having a psychosis and whatnot let's get to the next hadith here we have uh, another one where he says, the prophet came to us and said, and some nations were displayed before me. So he looks at the sky and he's having this weird holographic show displayed. A prophet would pass in front of me with one man and another with two men and another with a group of people and another with nobody. But then I saw a great crowd covering the horizon and I wished that they were my followers. But it was said to me, this is Moses. Then it was said to me, look, I looked and I saw a big gathering with a large number of people covering the horizon like you saw gabriel covering the horizon initially it was said look this way and that way and so i saw a big crowd covering the horizon so he's looking everywhere and he's seeing a crowd cover the horizon like gabriel was wherever he was looking as well uh, and he was also covering the whole horizon and this is mentioned in uh, multiple narrations uh but yeah interesting like he sees these people uh and uh, like, what is going on here? Thousands of people, 70,000 people in the sky, some weird uh, holographic movie for him being. Uh, but anyways, uh, let's go to the next slide. We have 342. And we have here, Muhammad is hanging out with Gabriel who hears a voice and another angel arrives. Muhammad receives his revelation during the episode. So here we have, Muhammad is kind of hanging out and he heard a creaking sound above him and a gate opened in heaven. An angel came down to him and two lights have been given to you. And then this weird uh, revelation kind of thing story comes up. 
Anyways, then we have another slide. And next slide is 343. Muhammad runs back ecstatically and reports his most recent auditory visual disturbance of hearing Allah boast about him and his followers to the angels through a gate opened in heaven. So we performed the Maghrib prayer and uh, those who stayed, stayed. Then the messenger of Allah came back in a hurry, out of breath with his garment pulled up to his knees and said, be of good cheer for your Lord has opened one of the gates of heaven and is boasting of you before the angel saying, look at my slaves. They have fulfilled one obligatory duty and are evading another. What I'm trying to get to here is try to project this and how this guy is. He runs up into a mosque with his things pulled up to his knees and he's out of breath panting. And he tells you, hey, guys, an angel came to me and told me that God opened a gate in heaven and was like cheering about you guys being nice people. It's straight up like schizo, crazy, psycho somebody going through psychosis. That's how they sound like. That's exactly how they would sound like. Uh, next slide, we'll go to 344. Here, Muhammad said that uh, he saw one of his friends, Jafar, flying in the paradise with the angel. Like, dude. Like, this is like Peter Pan and Tinkerbell going flying to Never Neverland or something like. <laughs> like it, it, it gets ridiculous. Like, where was this guy's head? An animal was brought to the messenger of Allah while he was going with the funeral. He refused to write on it. When the funeral was away, the animal was brought to him and he wrote on it. He was asked about it. He said, the angels were on their feet. I was not to write while they were walking. When they went away, I wrote. It makes no sense. This is so bizarre. Angels don't, do, do they have feet? Do they walk? I thought they had 600 wings and they flew around and they could take their shape shift. Like, what are you talking about? None of this makes sense. And like Dr. Ramachandran was saying, all of their weird behaviors start taking a bizarre underlying meaning that is religious which has no connection to reality and they like use these weird confabulations to explain their behaviors away it it, it just makes no sense uh can you just like i just want to read that one more time like this is so weird an animal was brought to him he refused to ride it and then when the funeral was gone he wrote it and he said the angels were on their feet, so I was not to ride while they were walking. So is this now a religious ruling that you if can't there's... drive a car near the the funerals because you're going to run over the angels' feet or something? No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> I mean, okay, that's being silly. But like, seriously, you can't drive. I mean, driving is like going on a camel because there's a funeral and the angels are walking. So out of respect for the angels walking, we have to walk as well. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The chapter literally says a chapter writing during a funeral, and this would imply that it's not good to write during the funeral. <laughs> it seems like it, right? But this could just be, just be a thing like out of respect, like some cultures have. You take your hat off and people okay. come in. You know, okay, you're not supposed to be riding a a donkey or a horse when people yeah. are taking their dead by you. Yeah. But the point is that he then twists it somehow to attach a religious meaning that he saw angels walking by metaphysical, <laughs> a metaphysical physical explanation. It's a metaphysical matter, just like a yeah. Farid piece be upon him says. <laughs> uh, the dude abides, uh, abides uh, not this time I said the name right, I think. 
Uh, I said, great presentation, guys. Uh, I hope this helps towards the documentary. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope so, too. We're definitely going to make a documentary out of this. And Yusuf Zai says, I'm going to go prepare some straws for Fazid. You'll need them after this. <laughs> I will need that. What was the straw figures? You scare crows they made out of straw. <laughs> straw man, right? Are you talking about the straw man? Uh, Sarah yeah. says, the biggest mistake Dawa did was to put Hadith online, let alone translate them. Seriously. I mean, it's bizarre, right? I mean, this stuff is useful for us, but... I mean, yeah. I'm glad you put it on. Honestly, like, even if I was trying to do this 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to. Because, like, these websites, these books that are available now due to digitization, uh, it, they just wouldn't be available, you know, even 20, 30 years ago. It was mm -hmm. straight up, I'd say, it'd be impossible to do something like this. Yeah. One more comment I just want to read. Uh, Yusuf Zai says, I think this series is the ultimate clip tonight against Islam. There can be no better refutation other than a literal time machine to go back and see for yourself. Uh, thank you for that comment. That's a great comment. Um, obviously, this, this would appeal to certain types of people, this presentation. People that are looking at it from a scientific, rational perspective. People that care about evidence. People that, you know, when the, when they see this, it clicks and it makes sense that, okay, this is what's happening. Um, obviously, some people, you know, no matter what you show them, you can't convince them. But in, in regards to a certain type of person, I agree with you. This is very convincing. There is one way that you could technically prove the epilepsy hypothesis or a theory, mm -hmm. and that would be with hard empirical evidence. If Muslims say that they have preserved hairs of Muhammad's bodies preserved in the grave, if you could retrieve a biological sample, you could then test it to see his genetics if he was predisposed to epilepsy. And you could then actually really make the, the definitive case, conclusive case probably from that, given what we know that, okay, maybe he did for sure suffer from it. But that's but there's also birth, birth issues too, right? Like we, we, we believe there was birth is issues involved mm -hmm. too, you know, like the suffering they went through in his life. Those mm -hmm. things that would show up in the genes. Exactly, exactly. Like, but the genes oh. could give us more additional uh, added confirmation I, that he did yeah. something. Mm -hmm. But uh, that is that is a far fetched story. I'm not ended, uh, <laughs> inspiring people to go dig up Muhammad's grave and, and his body out right now. And that, that's not like, don't. Anyways, let's go to the next slide. <laughs> Three forty six. So Muhammad reports seeing twelve angels rushing around in the mosque. This is even weirder. Messenger Father was leading us in prayer when a man came and entered the mosque and he was out of breath. He said, Allahu Akbar, blah, blah, blah. Then the Messenger of Allah had finished his prayer. He said, which of you is the one who spoke these words? People kept quiet. He said, he did not say anything bad. Uh, I did, O Messenger of Allah. I came and I was out of breath and I said it. The prophet said, I saw 12 angels rushing to see which of them would take it up. So Muhammad is in the mosque and nobody else sees these 12 angels, but then he sees 12 angels rushing towards this guy to take up whatever he said. I don't know what you to know, say about it. <laughs> as a Muslim, as a Muslim, um, there's two ways I would have looked at this. One is like, yeah, there's actually angels running. The other way I, I could potentially look at it is I could say this is just like an emphasis from Muhammad. He's just emphasizing um how how good it was and it's two more things i want to point out about this hadith by the way one is they were scared to tell him <laughs> they were nervous that he was going to get mad the second thing is how interesting it is that the, the things that people say they end up as part of this religion right mm -hmm. Allahu Akbar, alhamdulillah, 
Alhamdulillah, Alhamdan, Kathiran, Taiban, Walkan Fi. You can actually say that in the prayer. That, that's like part of the prayer, like, you know. Mm-hmm. And it came from a companion, which is like, that was just something that came from his mind and that ends up as part of the part of his life. Yeah. Quite a few examples exactly. of this, actually, right? Exactly. Muhammad would like take sayings and phrases from companions like that. <laughs> All right. Where are we next? Hadith 347. So this is a very famous one. We've gone over this before. It's the uh, famous uh, dog killing hadith. Uh, Aisha reported that Gabriel made a promise with Allah's messenger to come at a definite hour. That hour came, but he did not visit. So Gabriel was like, yo, bro, I'm going to come Friday night at like, you know, like 9 p.m., bro. Get ready. We're going to go out for drinks. We're going to have party time, some fun. The Muhammad's already and he's waiting for him. And, you know, and then Gabriel never shows up. And then Muhammad's like waiting for an hour. And then more time passes. And Muhammad's mad. And then it says, in Muhammad's hand, there was a staff, a stick, and he threw it from his hand out of the agitation he felt that his buddy Gabriel didn't show up. And then he shows up and then he found a puppy under his cot. And we've discussed like how did like they did not notice the puppy. Uh, but yeah, it's outright bizarre. Makes no sense. Like there's dogs everywhere on the planet. Earth angels who just peered if they hit dogs so much stop coming, you know, like here, like it's just, I don't know if it makes sense. And then the idea that kill all the dogs, kill the black dog, this whole uh, idea of the stupid delusion stems itself from Muhammad having this weird incident with his angel, but he not showing up on time. And I mentioned this before too. the House of Secrets on Netflix in episode two, I believe the occult, uh, the whole family that killed him. So the guy that was hearing voices of his dad coming to him, he would also give him appointed times when he was going to come see him next. So this is something that ties into that. It's pretty interesting. Uh, well, let's go to the next slide uh, and see what we have. Uh, Muhammad is ill and his imaginary friend Gabriel pays him a visit, talks to him and prays for his health. So <laughs> Abu Sa'id reported that Gabriel came to Muhammad and said, Muhammad, have you fallen ill? And thereupon he said, yes, Gabriel. And then <clears throat> in the name of Allah, I exercise you from everything and safeguard you. And then basically Gabriel did this, this chant or this prayer for Muhammad to get him healed of his illness. Again, this is just a delusion where some per psychotic person is sick. He's going through a hard time and he's having these angels come and pray for him. In fact, this exact thing that the angel told me I'm going to be all okay, mom, occurs with somebody who is very famous. I'm not even joking. Very famous in the contemporary music world. And he's going to show up. And it was his quotes. In quotes, he said, Mommy, the angel told me I will be okay. We'll get to that later. Uh, he's a very famous musician on par at, in the era. He was in Michael Jackson's era, almost on par with him in fame. Um, I have to say this comment is so funny. An angel with 600 rings is <laughs> a piece. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. The angel scared Muhammad. Muhammad was so scared. He was trembling, hiding under a blanket, yeah. falling on the ground. But then this angel yeah. was scared of a puppy. Like you said, like when you think about it, it is so ridiculous. None of it makes sense from like any end, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. that's so, hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting as well that, you know, Muhammad got sick. It's interesting. Okay, he's this special blessed holy guy not only does he get sick he gets 
all the time sick, more sick than others, apparently, according to his own words, you know, prophets attested more. And even here, the angels praying for him, but he still got sick. Did the angels do or not work? <laughs> like, imagine like you have angel praying for you. Like, does, does that even count? I don't know. Like, this is weird, right? Get into some issues there. It's a depressed, lonely man whose imaginary friend visits him and comforts him. You know, like that's what yeah. it is. And like the thing, like remember when he was rejected after Taif and he was spelled with stones and he, had, yeah. he was so depressed. Yeah. And then suddenly Surah Jinn comes down and the jinns show up and they believe in you. Nobody and believes suddenly, in you. <laughs> that, I mean, actually, Hamza Yusuf points out that it was at the lowest point in his life when he had the Isra al Miraj. Exactly. Everybody, like everything bad that could have happened, happened. He lost his Khadija. He lost his uncle Abu Talib. And then his his protection in Makkah as well went with that. And then, you know, Taif didn't work out. And then, you know, he had the Isra al Miraj's big yeah. thing where he sees God and, you know. And and funnily enough, depression and stress are major triggers for epilepsy. And stress can literally cause epilepsy in people, like epileptic seizures. You know, so it's yes. it's very interesting that that happened. Those big events or those big seizure hallucinations that are critical to his, his story or his sustained delusion also coincide with marked periods of uh depression and stuff right yeah and and this is kind of a is funny comment angels were protesting to the boss man but so, like it makes a good point yeah god wanted him to be sick i mean even the whole thing about praying in general is like well the angel mm -hmm. knows why he is sick yet angels praying for you means yeah like, Who's, who's the bad? Like, almost want to say, who's the bad guy here? <laughs> God's the bad guy. Like, he's the one that's making you sick, and everybody else seems to want you better except God. It's weird, right? Yeah. Uh, Anyways, these yeah. are like side points, but interesting yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, it just shows you this. His personality was weird. The what this is painting is showing you the picture of how his mind worked and how he was predisposed to psychotic, delusional ways of thinking. That's what we were trying to point to. This. Because this is showing you how his epilepsy led to him. His whole life ended up becoming Islam. He's absorbed by his delusion. And then mm -hmm. it showed up in so many parts of his life, but people just didn't notice or put it right, you know? Some people did notice it in the beginning in Mecca and all that. Uh, but anyways, mm -hmm. let's get to the, the next slide. And uh, thank you, thank you, Dale uh, Duckworth, for your $10 donation. Uh, it's yeah. nice to have you here and appreciate thank the donation. Thank you so much. As well. Really appreciate it. All right. So this is something weird. Now, Angel Gabriel came down and led Muhammad in prayer five times. And this is uh, going on that, oh, are you verify what you're saying? And then he says that Gabriel came down and acted as my imam. Then I prayed with him. And then I prayed with him, prayed with him, prayed with him, prayed with him, prayed with him. Another thing, notice that Muhammad would sometimes repeat a lot of his sentences. This is a feature of the Quran sometimes as well. He would talk in threes. We will come to that as well. Sign of his OCD. Prayers itself, repetitive rituals, up and down, up and down, pecking your head on the ground. Uh, these are all signs of OCD. But this is just interesting that an angel came to him, stood in front of him, and then Muhammad's following. Think about this. Salah is Muhammad telling you that an angel came to him, some ghost came to him and did these motions. And then Muhammad is following those motions. It takes a completely different, much darker undertone when you think about it. Salah is just literally this guy stemming behavior. Where he's doing these ritualistic, repetitive behaviors I, to his OCD because they bring him comfort. 
a lot of the time you'll see people who are overwhelmed st- overstimulated they'll you know like move back and forth or like do things with their fingers and stimming behaviors there to calm themselves down and they uh this sada is uh, one form of that but yeah uh, we'll get to that more in the detail in the OCD it's section. um it's interesting that like when i was muslim i was taught that this was a sign of his great um what's the word like the you know how how well he spoke right <laughs> and he's repeating himself but you you're right this is weird like nobody talks like this mm-hmm. gabriel came down and acted as my imam and i prayed with him and i prayed with him and i prayed with him then i prayed with him then i prayed with him like like who talks about Think about any friend you have, any person you know in your life, come up to you and tell you that an that some invisible thing came to them and told them to repeat these emotions that involve standing, bowing, and touching the floor with your kissing the floor five times a day, and you have to do them in sets of twos or fours or threes or whatever. You will straight up say, "Dude, you've lost your goddamn mind." Not kidding, and this should be everybody's response. Yeah. But but even even what I'm saying here is like not just this hadith but other hadith as well. But he repeats himself two or three mm-hmm. times. Nobody talks like that, right? Like normally, I'm saying. And then there's hadith where like he'd start talking in the morning and then uh, talk, keep talking about day of judgment and talk about it the whole day till like Isha prayer. And yeah, he he would get fixated on certain things like the jal and whatnot. But uh, yeah, <laughs> let's get to the next slide. They are at three fifty. Again, uh. Allah and Gabriel praise Muhammad's wife Khadija and assure her place in heaven as she brings forth a delicious bowl of soup. Uh, this is just something weird where Muhammad's imaginary friend is just coming in just to praise his favorite wife. Like it's uh, Gabriel came to the Prophet and said, this is Khadija coming to you with a dish having meat soup or some food or drink. When she reaches, you greet her on behalf of her Lord and on my behalf and give her the glad tidings of having a palace in paradise, wherein there will be neither any noise nor any fatigue. I mean, Muhammad's happy. Yeah, he's getting some good good biryani tonight. You know, the wife's making some good food. So, you know, the angel can like, yeah, you know what? She made you happy now. You know, Allah's happy too. <laughs> Gabriel, Gabriel's actually a prophet too. He's predicting that his wife is going to walk in. Because that's a prophecy. Mm-hmm. I predict your wife will walk in with a plate of biryani. <laughs> He's a prophet, <laughs> Prophet Gabriel, alayhi salam. <laughs> oh, man. Well, like I said, this is just bizarre behavior. It make no sense. Uh, this one is just outlandish. This is was this whenever, when I, even as a Muslim, when I first saw this, I at first refused to believe it. And so I had to take a double take on the hadith. I'm like, what? The prophet had a WWE wrestling match with a with like a with Satan with Iblis. Like he was like a great Kali versus like Batista. Like what was going on? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but the prophet once offered the prayer and said, "Satan came in front of me and tried to interrupt my prayer, but Allah gave me an upper hand on him and I choked him." Interesting thing, and what you need to remember is these things will pop out. Muhammad was choked by an angel. Muhammad then chokes the the, the demon. Interesting anomaly. So an interesting another one you'll come out later on is like Muhammad tried to kill himself by jumping off a mountain. Then there's hadith that say, don't throw yourself, by, uh, kill yourself by throwing yourself off a mountain for those are the worst and you keep falling in hell forever and ever. So you'll see that he will criticize himself inadvertently because of his OCD and scrupulosity, which we'll get to. 
Uh, but yeah, and then he ties the Satan to this pillar so that people can see him. But then he realizes, oh, shit, people can't see the pillar. Now I got to make up an excuse. And then he says, oh, you know what? I just let the gene, the Satan go because Allah only gave power of that to Solomon, right? So why would I let take precedence? Let Solomon. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know what used to confuse me as a Muslim? I don't know why this is all coming back to me now. Mm -hmm. It used to confuse me that he said that Allah promised this special power for Solomon, yet he's still using that power. So that used to confuse me. Like, but what? Like, if he if you didn't have the power, then how are you beating up the genie? You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, it's, I'm trying to make sense of it. Maybe, you know, just... maybe I, shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> There's nothing just sensible stop. in that. Just stop. Yeah. The more you try to make sense of this, the more your brain hurts. Like, and that's the beauty of it. Like when people try to perceive Muhammad and try to fit him in the expected framework of a guy who would have been normal. People somehow think like, oh my God, how, why did he do this? Why did he do that? It doesn't make sense. Therefore, he has to be the prophet of God. And that's because you're putting him in a category of normal people. So you're expecting normal lines of thinking and behaviors, but that's not what happens. Normal people wouldn't like lead an army into battle because an angel told them to straight up. But this happens with Muhammad a lot of the times. Anyways, uh, let's go to the next slide. 352. Muhammad hallucinates hearing the voices of two dead people being tortured from inside their graves. So it's this guy is hearing dead people like he's <clears throat> passing through one of the graveyards of Medina or Mecca. Heard the voices of two persons who were being tortured in their graves. The prophet said these two people are being tortured not for a major sin. And they're being tortured indeed never saved himself for being soiled with his urine. Remember we talked about this and Muhammad had a weird obsession with having urine drops fall on him. This might be a reflection of his own insecurity related to his own problems. Who knows urinary incontinence and Dr. Didikul speculated tying this in with hydrocephalus. That's a secondary point as well. But just another interesting that he hears dead people from inside their graves talking or not even talking there. He's hearing screams. He's hearing some people scream because they're being tortured. Think about if you hear screaming noises in your head and then you're like, yeah, it's because that guy didn't clean his pee-pee. What? And then you go and you take a leaf and it, and then put it on top of their grave and say, oh, the, till this leaf is or this branch is green, they won't get tortured. You have auditory hallucinations. You have delusional thinking. Psycho it makes no sense at all. And it just shows you again and again that the guy was not mentally in the right mind. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, this was an interesting one where, again, Muhammad is shown projections from heaven and hell on the wall of a mosque. Some prophet led us in prayer, then went up to the pulpit. And then he said, when I started leading you in prayer, I just saw a display of paradise and hell on the wall of the mosque. I never saw good and bad as I've seen today. He repeated the last sentence thrice again. <laughs> He would speak in threes. Uh, but what's interesting is Allah had like a, this 4K, 8K or whatever ultra ultra high HD resolution projection of heaven and hell being displayed exclusively on the wall of the mosque in Medina in the 7th century for Muhammad to see while he was praying. But nobody else saw it, by the way. It's just him. The next slide we have is genies request muhammad to stop cleaning themselves with bones dung and charcoal as it's food for genies like okay this is just imagine one of your friends tells you that 
a deputation of the jinn came to him and then they told him that please tell your friends to stop cleaning themselves with bones and dungs or charcoal because my genies eat them. You would look at your friend and you'd be like, what? Did you How does, you know, one thing I don't get, I never got, I never understood this. You know how they say if you don't, you know, say Bismillah, they say Muhammad said, if you don't say Bismillah, angel, the devil eats with you, whatever. Same thing here if you don't, you know, but but like physically these things are unaffected. So what's the issue? I don't get it. You know what I mean? It's a projection of like the thing is like the whole ideology Muhammad in his own head is confused. It's not thought out. It's coming out as it's happening in his own head. Yeah. So he projects humanistic traits onto gods, onto angels, onto genies. Like, for example, angels being offended by the smell of garlic. Mm-hmm. Angels don't have noses. They don't have, <laughs> they just don't. They How don't do you have, know? <laughs> right? Like they were walking earlier. But I thought angels had wings, bro. If, <laughs> but, but they were drinking Red Bull or something. But this guy's like, oh, you can't ride a freaking donkey around them because they're walking. <laughs> None of this makes yeah. any sense at all. Yeah. 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 I, I never understood this. It's just, anyways, we won't, we won't stay on this topic. <laughs> uh, this one was funny where uh, a genie carrying a torch is looking for Muhammad. And then he saw a genie wherever he looked. Again, a Yahya related to me from Malik. When the messenger of Allah was taken on the night journey, he saw an evil jinn seeking him with a torch of fire. Whenever the messenger of Allah turned, he saw him. So he's turning around and he's seeing this jinn coming to him with a fire, holding a fire, right? It's this weird. Another thing that he saw the people covering the horizon everywhere. He saw Gabriel everywhere. And now he's seeing this jinn everywhere as well. Uh, now we have the next uh, hadith, which talks about uh, the jinns uh, hearing Muhammad recite Surah Rahman. So uh, the messenger came to out to his companion and recited Surah Rahman from the beginning to its end for them. And they were silent. So he said, I recited to the jinns on the night of the jinns and they had a better response to it than you did. Each time I came to Allah saying, they would say, we do not deny any of your favors, our Lord, and yours is praise. This is very interesting where Muhammad is apparently... Uh, goes to his companions and recites Surah Rahman, uh, chapter 55 of the Quran, or I believe. And this is the Surah which repeats the phrase, nauseatingly. It's like every other verse is repeated. I actually ended up memorizing the Surah back in the day. I still remember snippets of it. Ar-Rahman, Allah, Al-Quran, and all sorts. Uh, but yeah, so the people did not really seem to be like, like it or not. Like they were like silent. Yeah, whatever. It's just another surah of the Quran. You know, it's nothing special. And then Muhammad gets annoyed. So he tells the companions like, you don't think Surah Rahman is beautiful or not? Or you didn't have a reaction to it? You know, the jinns had a better reaction to it. Every time I would recite, they would reply to my recitation. Subhanallah, look at the attention the jinns were paying. And now we can... <laughs> Muslim genies come into the picture. <laughs> you know, I think the companions... Must have been confused. They didn't know what to say. Like you, in the other hadith, they were scared. <laughs> They're like all quiet. He's like, it's okay. I'm not mad at you. Then the guy's like, yeah, I said it. <laughs> in this case, he's reading Quran. And he wants it to be like some interactive jam session. Like, which of the flavors of God do you deny? We don't deny. We don't deny. <laughs> which of the flavors of God do you deny? <laughs> we don't deny. <laughs> he wants 
uh, interactive rap battle or some shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Angels hate onions and garlic. Be banished to the graveyard. This is like we were just talking about. Uh, another thing with epilepsy sometimes is like the offensive smells you start uh, smelling as an aura two seizures and this pops up with a lot of patients so uh, sometimes the patients aren't explicit in showing their displeasure towards offensive smells but it comes out as a secondary personality trait or as things they do uh, right so Muhammad says that he forbade the eating of onions and leek when we were overpowered by desire to eat, we ate them. Upon this, the prophet said, he who eats this offensive plant must not approach our mosque, for the angels are harmed by the same things as men. No, it doesn't make sense. Angels are not the same as us. They shouldn't be harmed by the same things as us. Why is, you know, I understand his point is don't come with a bad breath to the mosque. That's, But again, the point, another point coming back to part one is with Dr. Ramachandran, everything takes a religious meaning. Everything is justified to religion. Why are you not like wearing the left sock or the right sock first is because the left hand is Satan's side or whatever. You make everything religion based. Uh, he who eats this offensive plant in Sahih Muslim uh, should not approach our mosques for angels are harmed but the same thing on the right side it's interesting where he said that ordering that the man who eats these things be taken out to the graveyard of al-baki that's so weird so if somebody ate them he would banish them to go there wait what does the rest of the hadith say whoever eats them let him cook them to death what does so that you, even mean so you for so you cook them so much till the point where they're the smell is burnt out or cooked out and the flavor is oh yeah <laughs> like roast them back yeah <laughs> okay. roast them like Allah will roast the disbelievers <laughs> in Jah Jahannam you know yo this is weird man how the is this like, is weird. you can't go to the graveyard <laughs> well, aren't the dead people affected by so angels, <laughs> angels in the graveyard like <laughs> right when you think about it it makes no sense Angels are everywhere. Why just the graveyard? There's two angels sitting on your shoulders. Can't they be offended by the same smell? <laughs> this is weird, yeah. Okay. So anyways, uh, before we conclude this section, the so last side of the section, I'm going to say that there is so much more you can add to this. We have like a whole Islamic nonsense series. I remember 100 slides or something, the Circus of Islam show we did. Yeah. It that's all. Yeah, it just shows you and explains or gives you a deeper understanding of why Muhammad came up with these bizarre BS things. Uh, and gives you an idea of like what kind of a think a mind he was involving. If these are things from his daily life, just think about it. The thinking required for you to have a worldview like this, like everything you do, like you're spitting on people and telling them, oh, it's God's blessing in them, you know, like they're drinking your blood and piss, it's a blessing. Angels are like wrestling you, sorry, demons are wrestling you, like WWE, and then you're choking the, the angel and tying them up, and then you're seeing angels running in the mosque, and your friends flying with the angel in paradise, like, guy, what are you on? This is not normal stuff, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, in the Bible, Jacob wrestled with God, Muhammad wrestled with <laughs> devils. <laughs> Man. It's funny. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. Yeah, go ahead. No, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to go to the next section. I'll, I'll okay. take some questions and comments because the next section we're going to start talking about the Quran, analyzing the Quran 
the rhymes, the repetitions, the frequency of repetition, what it means, hypergraphia. And now we're going to get into some really interesting stuff. All right, let me see. Let's take a look and see if there's any comments that need to be referred to. I yeah, I don't I don't see anything. Oh yeah, this was a good comment. We can we can talk about this. Imagine telling these stories to Muslims slightly altered, but not telling them it's from Islam to see the reactions. This is exactly what Abdullah Gondal was doing on his Facebook, making stories about Zinu. <laughs> Right. Uh, the, the creator of Xenu pops up in this presentation too, actually, oh, Alron okay. Hubbard. Funnily enough, guys, this is the funny thing. His wife and a couple of people say he was schizophrenic and he was even diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. If you Google right now, who is the guy who holds a world record, a single person to author the most number of books? It's L. Ron Hubbard. He holds a Guinness book of like a thousand some plus books. Right. So like, how can these people with such disorders like be writing this much and creating such these big cults that are now world famous and attracting celebrities like like Tom Cruise and whatever. But anyways, uh, we're going to get to that. But this is the point. This this section is going to be very interesting. There's a statistic analysis that is coming up, which will show you how Muhammad's literally you will see him think you will understand his thinking or his thought process. Okay, uh, but yeah, uh, let's get to it. Fatal. Hypergraphia is uh, another indication of uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. Usually people suffering from temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, they, are, they are prone to write profusely. Uh, sometimes they are poetic writing. Sometimes they, are, they rhyme with each other. That's why the early revelations are rhyme. Very much there is this rhythmic, poetic language which doesn't exist in the later revelations. Uh, and there were many, many people in the history which I've enlisted in my book that are believed to have temporal lobe epilepsy. Hypergraphia means writing a lot. In his case, if you accept the argument that he was illiterate and he was not writing, it is coming out in the form of verbal Yes. So it is he's showing it in that fashion. So you can confirm as a doctor that people who have epilepsy they get hypo hypergraphia. Of two, two conditions can do that, and he had both of them. Mm -hmm. It happens with the obsessional thinking, the, the compulsion, you know, writing a lot is a part of the compulsions. And also, then there is also seizure, and this is adding to that. And, and then, so there is that. Why does it happen? It is, again, goes back that this is happening in left temporal lobe. Left temporal lobe, a, the, the main function of it, although these are very important, but it is actually the latest part of uh, 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 a brain. The, it is the part which distinguishes between human beings and animals, the fact that they can talk. Mm. That is in left hemisphere. You have a stroke in the left hemisphere, you go mute. Now, when this is happening, to him, uh, you're going to see 
language related issues. Oh, because our left hemisphere is in charge of language. In charge of language. Yes. Okay. No doubt about it. Except if you are left-handed, then it goes to the right side. Right. Actually, it becomes mixed up. Okay, so it's because it's responsible of language, they get more talking or what? Because it is there, you can have a, a variety of problems. And this is so wide because there are so many things related to language. All right, so this is very important, the explanation he's giving, like what hypergraphy is, if you cannot read or write, uh, sorry, if you cannot write, then it'll come up as verbal hypergraphia. He then explains that how it can change different people, how the left, hem uh, left uh, half of the brain is predominantly in most people uh, responsible for uh, the language center, the Vernikis and the Broca's areas are, are very close proximity to the temporal lobe on the left side. This concept is called lateralization, which uh, is an idea that talks about uh, certain uh, cognitive functions or abilities are uh, specialized to certain hemispheres or certain parts of the brain. So uh, language is predominantly left part. So sometimes seizures, what they do if they originate in the focal focal in the temporal lobe or even on the right side they might cause an imbalance due to this uh, set of neurons in the Wernicke's and Broca's area which can come up at times as compulsive rhyming in patients who had absolutely no history of rhyming we'll get to that in a second but this is very important because it can also take the form of painting singing drawing so many different types right <clears throat> uh, but whilst keeping this in mind Let's go to the next slide. Now, what I did here, uh, I don't know if you can read the, the wording. It is a little tiny, a little bit tiny. Uh, but I took the Quran and I took it in order of the revealed surahs. Okay, so you get the first five or six surahs, which is Ikra, uh, Surah Noon, Mudassar, Muzammil, and excluding Fatiha, there's Surah Allah, or Masad. So, then what I did was I then only took the Meccan verses, i.e. the surah, the verses that were revealed in Mecca. Because these surahs had injected verses revealed in Medina from 20 years later. Think about this. These, these surahs were the first ones to be revealed. And for 13 years, there's nothing added. And 13 years after in Medina, verses were being added to it. So I removed those just to get an idea of what exactly did Muhammad come up with in his actual first revelation that he was speaking out to the Meccan people. Because they kept saying to us that Muhammad is crazy again and again and again and again. They must have noticed something that Muhammad was saying that caused them to claim he is crazy. Let's see what he said. So when you do an analysis, let's quickly go back uh, Sorry, to the next slide. And then we'll come back to this slide again. <clears throat> is you put these verses out and have color coded them. You see a pattern emerge. Okay. In Surah uh, 96, Iqra, Surah Mudassir Muzammil, you have a set of verses in the beginning which either comforts Muhammad, tells him to uh, do something, or don't worry about what the disbeliever is saying. Then these surahs go nuts. They go like, Threat, 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 disbelievers, bad, jahannam, jahannam, afterlife, threat, 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 threat. Each and every time you go now, if now you go back to that same 
uh, slide before, you get Surah Alak, you see first five verses, you have a commanding voice telling Muhammad what to do, and then it goes on. Red ones are the threats and translation. The yellow ones are kind of like hellfire, whatnot. But they're still talking about obsessed, ideated, the thoughts are fixated against repeating hellfire threats afterlife. Hellfire threats afterlife. Muhammad wasn't coming with anything apart from these poems in the beginning. So when people are like, hey, dude, like bring us some evidence, he didn't really bring anything. And he just kept coming with uh, these poems. But uh, yeah, so we'll just go back to the next slide. You can pause, read the verses, how I've highlighted them. And again, this is not like uh, uh, like written in stone. There is a little bit of flexibility, but just to give you a general idea, 70% uh, of the verses revealed in the first five chapters in Mecca were threats of hell, condemnation of fear-mongering directed towards unbelievers. Most chapters start by comforting Muhammad. The clear pattern emerges of its fixation on hell and afterlife and threats. As early as the second revealed chapter, <clears throat> uh, Surah Nun, Surah Kalam, we see two mentions of Muhammad being suspected as crazy. Doesn't all wise God introduce his message to the world in such a manner where he's just threatening everybody and uh, giving them these uh, condemnations of hellfire and whatnot? Uh, so this is something that I noticed that was very interesting that, of course, the people of Mecca would have noticed as well. So after this, we are the going to... People of Mecca are not as dumb as Islam tries to paint them. Mm -hmm. They weren't. They weren't as dumb. Be Think about this. If they were as dumb, like Muhammad's, a couple of Muhammad's uncles were like vehemently against them. The, the chiefs of Mecca, like for 11, 13 years, they kept calling him crazy, crazy. They would have known something. They had people who had gone to Persia. They kept saying that you were just repeating stories of the ancient Haza Satirul Avalin. They definitely have heard these stories. And there was Christians living nearby. There's Jews in Khaybar, Jews in Medina. Muhammad's guy, Varaka, was translating stories, the Bible. Muhammad was exposed to these stories too. So over time hearing them, he came up with a mishmash version because of epilepsy. He might get confused and then change certain details. Hence, this could also explain certain details being mixed up by Muhammad in some stories. Lots to it. But uh, yeah, this is a clear pattern that emerges in the first five chapters. And this is just a small sample just to show you that something went off in this guy's head where it was just like, do this, you're the prophet of God, and threat, 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 whoever doesn't believe in you. But yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and a lot of these... Um... Uh, actually implying specific people in his life. Like, leave me with the one I created alone and whom I gave extensive wealth and children present with him and spread. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name now. It was one of the one of the famous uh, enemies of Islam. But anyways, like these are people in his life he's getting mad at and he's yeah. actually cursing them in the Quran. Like Surah Masa <laughs> is, is a classic example where yeah. like God is in a yelling match like a child, like, you know ruined Abu Lahab, ruined is he and his wife go to hell like come on guys like this is <laughs> but anyways uh once we establish this we'll go to slide number 362 where dr uh Dede then discusses his hypergraphy a little bit too on the left side he says a careful reading of the quran reveals many instances of Lacocious, pedantic, overly detailed, and peripheral ideation that sometimes goes on in a rather incomprehensible manner, 
all adding up to circumstantiality, a trait of personality function prevalent in CPS complex partial seizure patients. Anyone reading the Quran will notice that Muhammad sometimes goes on and on about very little. Another CPS personality trait that we need to look at is viscosity, a stickiness in oral and riddle productions that is beyond common sense, like a needle stuck in a crack on a phonograph record. Well, if you can find this in Muhammad's thought process, then we have more evidence of his CPS illness. So then he says, hypergraphy is the expression of viscosity in the written mode. Many evaluators of the Quran have superficially noticed this without realizing its too true neurological significance. What is happening neurologically is the process of a sort of lock reverberation of memory tapes in the hippocampus section of the temporal lobe of the brain. Thus, one reads in the Quran at the endless repetition of the same material over and over again. And he gives you a little bit of like an example about Surah 96. You can pause and read that if you want to in Surah 109 where it's like, He literally keeps repeating the phrase back and forth, back and forth, and it's a weird thing. And the picture on the extreme right, he says that Muhammad seemed fond of a phrase or something like that. He kept repeating this phrase uh, and he then lists out where, and this is an example of viscosity in Surah 77, I believe that Surah Mursalat, uh, he, that one is a weird one. So in Surah 77, in the end, I think it goes in or something like that, where Allah just curses like every alternating verse upon the disbelievers as if the guy had a mental breakdown in this surah very interesting chapter do check it out uh but does give you insights into the author who was writing the quran what is uh cps complex partial seizures so it's just a small uh, acronym for that okay got it so so uh this is interesting this is actually an analysis of the quranic text and finding that this is this is representing examples of hypergraphia Now, we're going to quickly go over these. I did mention them in the first presentation we did way back last year, but we're going to go over this quickly. Hypergraphia for poetry in an epileptic patient. Uh, So this one is a 58-year-old right-handed man complained of being driven to write poetry. For five years, he experienced words continuously rhyming in his head, and he felt the need to write them down and show his writing to others. He did not talk and rhyme, write excessively in non-rhyme, or read poetry. The person, the patient had not had a preoccupation with poetry until age 53. And basically, uh, he also goes on about he had epigastic rising, complex partial seizures. The doctor reported the patient being circumstantial and viscous in conversation, a great characteristic. It's like we just learned uh, from Dr. Didikurka that is predominant in the Quran as well. We're going to go to the next uh, slide now and that will be viscosity and social cohesion and temporal lobe epilepsy clinical case reports suggest a viscosity the behavioral tendency to talk repetitively and circumstantially about a restricted range of topics is common in patients with tle such patients are also reported to exhibit heightened levels of social cohesion the tendency to become interpersonally clingy the sticky interpersonal style may be particularly common in tle patients with a left-sided temporal lobe seizure focus Reminding you that when Muhammad, uh, in one of the parts we did, his head pulled to the right side and Dr. Abbas was saying that his focus of his seizures might have been on the left side. Uh, 
anyways, uh, this goes on. It's quite common in people with temporal epilepsy, viscous and circumstantial speech, and obsessive focus on small set of uh, topics. We're going to go to the next slide, and we're going to just quickly go over this, where a patient starts to compulsively rhyme after treatment of her epilepsy. Her verses were discrete, highly structured, and creative outputs, unlike others. Again, you can pause, read the details if you want, uh, and then we're going to go to the next slide by Dr. Didik Kirkut. He then goes on to elaborate a patient who had a similar case to Muhammad in terms of behavior and the hypergraphia. Uh, on the top part, you see that people who have complex partial seizures markedly write number of words in a written response uh, for, for the same problem. For 4,200 to 5,540 words, possible CPS patients want 20 words, and general patients are 33 words. Think about that CPS patients have a tendency to talk or keep on going on and on and on about the same thing to the point that differences, let's say you take 120 to 5,000, that's that's quite a huge factor, uh, significant sub difference. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of the Quran is just repeating the same thing over and over again. Exactly. It's stuck on the same idea. Yeah, and the same exactly. stories repeated multiple times. I mean, I remember even reading some reviews of the Quran, which, which explains that even the story of Moses, it's in Surah, noon it's in surah bakara it's in you know surah taha it's like all i don't know if it's actually in surah mm. Muna, but, you know it's like all over the place right little pieces it, here and there. exactly mm -hmm. yeah it just pops up once and if you're not fully aware of the story you're really kind of lost if you're listening to it like okay wait wait what moses did this i didn't know i was supposed to know this because a passing reference uh, anyways, uh, hypergraphia is one of the more obvious traits of the interseizure behavior complex. So he gives a case where at the age of 34, uh, he began to have occasional grand mal seizures. Seven years later, he began to have episodes in which he felt dazed, unaware of his surroundings. He started seeing green and purple flashes of light wherever he looked. Remember Muhammad seeing the green screen covering the horizon and looking, seeing things wherever he looked? He began to spend many hours a day in volunteer work for religious organizations. He preached several sermons at his church at his own suggestion. He spontaneously volunteered typed copies of these sermons to his physician. The sermons concerned highly moral issues, which were dealt with in highly circumstantial and meticulous detail. In his productions, he made frequent and precise definitions and digressions along secondary themes. It's pretty interesting how this guy's personality changes. He gets obsessed with, you know, religious sermons, preaching about religion, dava, the whole thing. And uh, he keeps writing and talking about religious topics and stuff. And that's pretty interesting and similar to Muhammad. Now, in the next slide, we're going to find something interesting. We see something, and before we have Dr. Abbas explain it, in the first few chapters of the first Meccan fifth of the Quran, we start off with the compositions being highly poetic, but then there's a trend. It starts getting less and less and less and less poetic and more prosaic. And when you get to Medina, it is so much more prosaic that scholars, Western scholars, I'm not going to name who, have told me, leading experts, that it's almost like somebody else wrote the second half of the Quran. The way the literature, the way it comes out, it's like it could, it's markedly different. Now, and one theory is that because of his epilepsy, when he started, it brought out his creativity, his rhyme, as we'll see in some cases coming up. But over time, with age on its own and then his epilepsy worsening and not being treated and his delusions worsening, 
his ability to rhyme was lost. And that's why the Quran, when he gets longer into Muhammad's life, it's more long-winded verses. It doesn't make as, uh, as much poetic sense. It's harder to read, harder to understand. It's more concerned with laws and it's more meticulous details and stuff. And a lot of violence too. Uh, but uh, yeah, <clears throat> something interesting to note. We'll listen to Dr. Abbas, and then we're going to conclude this section on the Quran, and we're going to get into the hype, uh, the violence part of uh, his disorder. I have heard this from uh, uh, my friends, mm -hmm. uh, psychologists, that who were who, who were good in Arabic, but they were not Muslim, and also the Muslims, but they all kind of agreed that this is just very nice language it is very nicely written right. and and so on so then what you are seeing is that as he is getting worse as time is passing by right you don't have that eloquent surahs of when he was in mecca there is more problems it is destroying because it's causing more problem in the left temporal lobe. So he uh, he's not as eloquent. His vocabulary is not as good. You cannot compare ba uh, the Baghara, as far as I know, right. to uh, the first one. Aqra al-Alaq, for example. I mean, that is... Or Al-Kawtar, or Al-Duha, or Shams. Although it is my... I don't know, third, second or third language, mm -hmm. I can see that these are, it is obviously very, very different. Right. And what can cause this, except the deterioration of left temporal lobe. Right. So a very interesting point he made there again. Uh, another thing I'd like to add uh, to it is if the Quran's best and most poetic and beautiful parts were revealed in Mecca, and there were the first earlier surahs, why did the Meccans, who are these champions of recognizing Arab poetry, instead of seeing, oh my God, the Quran is such an amazing book, instead they said Muhammad is crazy. Why would they say that? If Quran's best parts resulted in Muhammad being labeled crazy, Think about nobody what it says about it. it. Uh, nobody accepting it for 13 years almost. He had 100 followers, a couple hundred maximum, that he had to send to Abyssinia, half of them. It was only after, when he got to Medina, when he got political influence, that he gained followers. When he started exerting his military influence, he started um, Islam started spreading faster. Can you guys still hear me? It looks like Gondol, uh, Bill Gondol got froze up, and I'm not sure if this is still streaming. I'm oh, just gonna. I'm check. back here. Okay, hey guys, back. Yeah. Hi. Okay, Hi. just a hiccup, but uh, we'll we'll get back to it. I think we were talking about uh, his uh, like his ability to like exert political influence that led to the growth of Islam in Medina versus Mecca, where he was. Uh, rhyming with the best of his ability with the best of the quranic uh 
surahs and yet he could only get a hundred followers right so it just speaks that the quranic literary argument that it's some big book that was so impressive the meccans are falling on their faces over the poetic beauty of this book doesn't make sense when they're calling you crazy for the exact same reason yeah but anyways uh let's keep going and we will go to the violence aspect uh this is interesting uh and this is something that we see that uh, people that are epileptic in some ways can become violent uh not always uh this is again not to say that everybody with epilepsy is violent no but this can come up uh, as a symptom when you're challenging people with delusional beliefs uh so let's see and this can also come up with not only just uh, explicit violence from the person himself but soliciting murder soliciting violence through religious means via other agents as well uh, but let's get to it. Uh, this is going to be the first slide. We're going to start off. It says, I want to die over and over again. Uh, Abu Huraira saying, <laughs> What? To that petition again. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that I wanted to point out. Yeah. Uh, Abu Huraira said, By whose hand my life is, uh, I would love to fight in Allah's cause and then get martyred and resurrected and come to life, get martyred, resurrected, come to life, get martyred. <laughs> Uh, you, you need to read the full thing to show just how weird it sounds and think about it that this is how the prophet sometimes spoke and it's just like dude you're just just weird uh but yeah this is something uh that will pop up again and again uh, we have a small clip i believe from dr abbas again where he briefly talks about uh violence how it can come up as a part of epilepsy and how it ties in Having problem with aggression is a, you know, we, we, we deal with it every day. It's right. every, every day business. But for a moral person, for a religious person, for a person who has lost his wife, hmm. has been through all of this, and then uh, has been actually when the environment only permits mm. to be patient, alas, mm. to be patient and so on. Once he gets into the environment that he has followers who would do what he wants, he's just like anybody that you see in the history of mankind who became a, killed a lot of people, mm. is America. that, well, I don't want to be disrespectful, but 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 yes, he, what he did was that he he developed certain behaviors which does not match him and does not match men of his age, and and it is only caused by people who have neurological problems. And some of these are just awful behaviors that you wouldn't expect a person who is a religious man yes and, and a person who is so moralistic and, and this that and so on uh, that uh, you know the things that he did in wars torture right. killing and he actually killed him all right so that was an interesting bit that talks about muhammad's uh, disposition of violence so there is in the quran literally beheadings in the quran i mean that's pretty extreme behavior uh 
by any me by any measures but uh yeah uh, what we're gonna get to is a little brief overview quickly over muhammad's life some major uh, points about his violence we're not going to go into details of everything because we're just going to skim over to get the idea but here we have muhammad the warlord now after muhammad moved to medina like i said it was when he got political influence there are 62 raids or battles by the muslim army in the last 10 years of his life when you do the maths you get about a battle or a raiding party every two months or so on average and out of those only three to probably can pushing it maximally five were in self-defense so you get a figure of a 92 to 95 percent of the wars uh, or raiding parties or attacks were actually muslims being proactive this was what we uh should have been discussing last night in the debate with the hakika jew was uh how many wars the frequency of warfare and whatnot uh, but this actually then gives you a horrifying figure where you then realize, okay, Muhammad in the last 10 years of his life went with this straight-up ideal, which was the sword, and he inflicted it with no mercy. And as he said, it starts to make sense. The more you read Muhammad's Sirah, he said, I have been made victorious with terror. And this is not just him saying it. Well, I mean, it is him, but Allah says it through Muhammad again in the Quran too, that I make you victorious with the help of terror. Uh, I just posted some screenshots of some some of the battles highlighted. This is not like an exhaustive list, but just to give you an idea, there's lots more. You can even add to the list as well, depending on whose list you're taking from. Uh, next slide, we're going to go to just to quickly cement the idea that when Muhammad said, uh, Allah's apostle said, no, that paradise is under the shades of the sword. So this is quite a significant statement to make. You know, I mean, these significant, the, the thing is, if it was just a few violent statements, you know, but the thing is, in Islam, in the Quran, the most holy text, we find beheadings. We find angels being asked to smite the necks and fingertips of disbelievers and being harsh and whatnot. The fact is, there's so much of it that it becomes to a point where it's statistically significant chunk of the Quran and the theology is dedicated to this. And that's why this is a huge problem. Uh, anyways, let's keep going. I heard my father saying that the gates of Jannah are under the shades of the swords. And then because of this, statement this man heard this and he was so uh like taken that he's gonna go to heaven right now that he broke the scabbard of his sword and threw it away and rushed towards the enemy with the sword and fought till he was martyred so this is manipulation with religion and the promise of huris and jannah being used to make people fight for your cause i.e manipulation uh the messenger of Allah said, I've been commanded to fight the people until they testify that there's no right to worship Allah and I'm the messenger of Allah I've been commanded to fight the people and it talks about uh, and this hadith has been used by a lot of i mean daniel hakikad you can tell you that offensive warfare and spreading islam to the whole world is part of islamic uh, theology and that's where it comes from and this delusion when it first started was not this but then over time muhammad kept thinking i'm the chosen one i'm going to spread this thing to the whole world and it kind of got out of hand the next slide we're just going to quickly show some Verses of the Quran that signifies some sort of violence that if just the fact that they exist in the Quran disqualifies it from being a book of the word of God, because you wouldn't expect God to be such uh, explicitly violent in his last message to mankind. In fact, the way these violence notions come out also shows that this is a product of a damaged mind and not a wise God. Uh, 2.216, that jihad fighting in the way of Allah is 
ordained for you, or though you may dislike it. So you, you're basically being gaslit into fighting or guilt stripped into fighting for Muhammad's cause. Uh, we shall cast terror into the hearts of the unbelievers. 3151, 839, fight them until there's no more fitna and all religions for Allah, the whole spreading Islam to the world. Your sound went low just now. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, now it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then there's uh, strive against the heart against the disbelievers and hypocrites and be harsh against them. The sword versus their. And the thing is, one thing to know, Surah 9, Surah Tawbah is one of the last surahs to be revealed in Muhammad's life. Like legit one of the last ones. So a lot of the scholars say that this surah abrogates a lot of the other peaceful things because this is one of the Muhammad's lasting legacy, what he left to the world. So, and then you see that there's some couple of beheading verses where the angels are being asked to behead. Like, at what kind of delusional thinking do you get to that you're like, okay. You know, it, I was just thinking about this when you were presenting the other other slides about the, you know, the anger he was showing in, even in the early verses, mm -hmm. the ones which are the most beautiful, like the most, you know, the ones, the short surahs. Mm -hmm. And the only difference between those and these is that at that time, he could just curse them. Now he had power, right? And then I remember there was, uh, there was before he migrated to Medina in one of the seerahs, I forgot which one, he said to the Meccans, I will inflict slaughter upon you or something. And he did exactly that. Once, and the thing is, like, because he was tortured by the Meccans or persecuted by them, that probably would have pushed him more because of his psychotic delusion to retaliate once he got the chance in a more violent way. And he can justify it because he's God's messenger. <laughs> yeah. The next slide is terrorism is help from God. I mean, anybody who says I've been helped by terror is obviously like God. No, you're not talking to God. You're <laughs> talking to some scary angel or demon. <laughs> I mean, who's choking you like a ketchup bottle. So I guess the terror still hasn't left you. I mean, yeah, this is repeated a few times in the Quran itself. Uh, and then the hadith too. In the last one, it says, I have been supported with fear while I was sleeping. The keys of the treasures of the earth were brought to me and placed in my hands. So this guy has that narcissism too, right? He thinks he's got the, the keys of everything in the universe or the world, treasures in his hand. It's delusional. You know, like... Muhammad, uh, Muhammad says, I've been given the keys to treasure of earth. Genghis Khan, <laughs> hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, let's continue yeah uh the next one is gonna be the infamous uh, massacre of banu Quraiza. and i mean this is just sad and on the left side we have sira bin ashaq and it mentions uh briefly uh what happened uh, and the number it says uh you can talk about whoever's judgment it was the fact that muhammad says allah affirms the same judgment and that it's the same god and he allah agrees with it muhammad agreed with it he had the power to overturn it but he didn't and in fact, he inflicted this punishment in the most gruesome ways. Then the apostle of Allah went out to the market of Medina, which is still the market today, and dug trenches in it. Then he sent for them and struck off their heads in those trenches as they were brought out to him in batches. Among them was the enemy of Allah Hawaii and Kab bin Asad, their chief. Uh, they were 600 to 700 in all, though some put the figure as high as 800 or 900. Now, the fact that this happened, like, the, just picture this. This is straight up like a movie from or a scene from an ISIS propaganda video. Like, this is a script 
for an ISIS propaganda video where batches of people are coming and there's these trenches and you just guys are sick chopping heads off, hundreds of them tossed into these mass graves in the market of Medina. I'm, what is going on? Now on the right side, what is more disturbing is uh, on that day we represented the messenger of Allah, those who had pubic hair that had grown were killed and those whose pubic hair had not yet grown were let go. And then it goes on to the same thing. This guy was literally chopping off kids' heads. No joke. When he, There is no explanation for this. You cannot tell me that a kid who's merely grown pubic hair has the same mental capacity, physical maturity of an adult. In fact, the fact that these people don't understand biology, that adolescence is not a switch. It's not an on-off where one night you wake up and the next day you're an adult. No, it's stages. It's a lot of development that goes on for years. And the fact that this guy taught that you could chop off 11, 10, 12-year-old kids, or even younger if you make the argument that in the hot Arab lands, kids mature young. I, it's just sad that somebody chopped off so many beheaded so many people in the name of god it just doesn't make sense and remember this was inspired by remember the story where dihya kalbi came to muhammad sitting on a horse wearing a turban and a robe muhammad thought it was not dihya it was actually gabriel and then dihya told him to go to banu Quraiza. this whole story is so bizarre uh, like this angel showing up and telling him to do this and it's not an angel his friend whatnot uh, but yeah, it's just hard to stomach that a god can inspire this. Huh. Uh, we then have Dr. Abbas quickly explain us that uh, how if you challenge patients about their delusions, they become irritable, irritated, and hence they will attack you or they might solicit something like this. What happens is that if the person believes in a delusion and you have probably seen people who are, you know i had patients who was thinking that russians have put something in his head and they're controlling his behavior right now if you contradict this with the person you challenge uh, no which in old times they used to do that and it would just irritate the person now what we tell everybody the nurses and so on is oh it's just back up even the medicine and until the condition goes away in but you will easily see it that if a person has become has developed illusions delusions hallucinations you know all, all these type of things that you are seeing in him you contradict that you you are going to get him angry mm. and if you're a prophet of god then you can do whatever you want which in his case was permitting uh, decapitation, uh, which is just far too strong of a behavior. If it was just an, if you would tell me I'm a bad psychologist. <laughs> He's not wrong. Like when anybody says, yeah, God told me to go behead those guys and stuff. It's, it's just too extreme of a thought that you're hearing voices that are telling you to go behead people. Huh? Like that's that's not OK. Uh, uh, c carrying on, uh, even he was lost for words. Like this is extremely uh, 
strong behavior. We're gonna just quickly go off on this. Uh, so we're gonna go off. There's a old blind. There's a blind man who had a slave mother who used to abuse the prophet and disparage him, Muhammad. And then this guy stabbed her. Muhammad said her blood is okay to be spilled. You don't need to pay for her blood. Uh, we then have uh, the two singing girls that were killed and a couple of people listed here. Uh, then we on the right side, we have Muhammad sending assassin creed style assassination parties. No joke. This guy would literally sell assassins to go kill somebody in a different city or town in a different castle. People like scale up the walls like Assassin's Creed and then do this whole weird thing. Allah's messenger sent some people from the Ansar to kill Abu Rafi uh, who used to hurt Allah's messenger. Right. And he was sleeping and they were killed. Again, uh, the next one, we have some more. Uh, There's actually a funny thing I said, this Muhammad's Dead Poet Society. So you'll see on the next slide that we have a few more poets that he killed. He's finally, like Dr. Abbas said, if you question and challenge them and you challenge them in ways like in satirical, poetic ways, and they're dumbfounded, the way they react is with violence. So here you see Muhammad and Sadqa bin Ashraf go, who will kill him for he has hurt again. And then... Africa uh, bin Ashraf in other books we have more names Abu Afaq was killed and uh, Asma bin Marwan and then yeah you can argue about the authenticity about each individual story but the point is that there's just so many of them with the same and main essence of the point of killing poets and blasphemers is you want to start understanding why Muhammad was like this now we're gonna go to the next slide uh these are things you might have already always heard in different uh, criticism of Islam pop up in different forms. But just connecting this back to his neurology is what makes this uh, important because this is what you're going to the core, the source of everything Islam is, is Muhammad. So an interesting verse here I just brought up is Kuntum khayra ummatin nas. Now this is, I think, Surah Imran verse uh, 3110, yeah. And I remember Dr. Zakir and I uses this word so much to say that you're the best people created for mankind because you give the messenger of Allah and you stop people from bad things. But the tafsir say otherwise. The tafsir say like Ibn Kasir, you're the best nation for the people because you bring them tied in chains on their necks, capture them in war, and when they later embrace Islam. <laughs> and on the right side, Sahih al-Bukhari literally quotes Muhammad in a hadith explaining this verse you muslims are the best of people that ever raised up for mankind means the best of people for mankind as you bring them with chains on their necks till them race islam this speaks huge volumes about what kind of ideology islam is it's not an ideology that's talking about freedom of religion it's like we are now getting to understand it's very much so based on violence oppression and using the sword to establish uh the rule of Islam. Uh, the next slide, I'm not going to say what it says, as you can all read it, uh, because I don't want to get demonetized, but there are instances reported in Muhammad's life uh, where uh, I, I'm just not going to say it. You can read it. It's pretty clear. You can argue about its authenticity, but the point isn't that. The point is that there are just too many numerous incidents of the same nature about the same man that it just speaks about something was going on with him. Uh, now we go up to the uh, next uh, slide. This one's uh, the apostates and atheists. Uh, here we are affirmed in multiple narrations that you have to kill the atheists uh, because uh, you know they're a, and the word is in the. 
uh, Ali actually ended up burning some of them, and then they rebuked Ali for that, but still affirmed that you still gotta you still gotta kill them, you know. Like uh, I don't, there's a yeah. vigilante. <laughs> Vigilante affirmation where during the last years, young foolish people will appear, their faith won't go beyond their throats, so kill them wherever you find them. These things are just irresponsible statements from Muhammad, given that if you're saying these things, you're encouraging vigilantism in the end of times, and you know that end of times, every time that you live in, people think it's the end of times. Okay, so it's this recipe for paranoid people going off. Yeah. Uh, this was just a quick skim over some of the highlights of his life where his violence popped up, which is not normal levels. This is abnormal types of violence, killing hundreds of people. I mean, think about it. Muhammad killed some people by himself when in war, but he also solicited the murder of a lot of people. When you think about it, all the killings that happened under the name of Islam and Muhammad was alive probably end back on his hand because he's end up being responsible for you know, ordering the army to go there or there at nighttime. The army didn't go on its own to kill those kids at night. It was Muhammad commanding those things, right? So when he needs theology to work for him, he can twist and change it around. Uh, we're done with this section now. Uh, we're going to go to the interesting scrupulosity OCD section. And then there's one more section of famous cases, and we're done with the presentation after. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so this is very, very interesting. Uh, what is scrupulosity? This is International OCD Foundation. We're going to read this, and you'll start to see that as I read this, these are traits that you see in Muhammad's personality jump at you. A form of OCD involving religious or moral obsessions. Scrupulous individuals are overly concerned that something they thought or did might be a sin or other violation of religious or moral doctrine. What are symptoms of scrupulosity? Common obsessions seen in scrupulosity include excessive concerns about blasphemy, having committed a sin, behaving morally, purity, i.e. voodoo, going to hell, death, a loss of impulse control. Besides excessive worry about religious and moral issues, scrupulosity sufferers engage in mental or behavioral compulsions. Behavioral compulsions could include excessive trips to a confession, repeatedly seeking reassurance from religious leaders and loved ones, repeated cleansing and purifying rituals. Very, very specific. Acts of self-sacrifice, avoiding situations in which they believe religious moral error would be especially likely. Mental compulsions could include excessive praying, sometimes with an emphasis on the prayer needing to be perfect. Remember the times Muhammad would sit in the mosque and a person would pray and then he'd be like, oh, go repeat your prayer. You did it too fast or it wasn't pure enough. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of adding up. Uh, repeatedly imagining sacred images or phrases. Zikr, you know, sitting there repeating the phrase, Allahu, Allahu, whatever. Uh, making pacts with God. These are literally very on point in how they're described. Wow. They're very like, on point. They should just put like one line. See Muhammad. <laughs> <laughs> huh. uh, but now, next slide, we're going to go into a little more academic way of what OCD is, is for the prevalence of this. So, we have this paper Epilepsy and OCD. Uh, OCD has long been associated with epilepsy. The link with TLE, usually refractory epilepsy, is particularly prominent. Of temporal of epilepsy patients, 10 to 22% of patients may have OCD. 
often underdiagnosed in the outpatient clinic. Okay. Then it goes on to says they have noticed noted the obsessive qualities of washing, symmetry, exactness, and ordering with a greater preoccupation with certain aspects of religion. This, my guys, symmetry, you know, left side, right side first, you know, ordering, you got to do the salah in a specific order. The wudu has to be in a specific order. Things have to be this way, that. Uh, washing, it, it's very much adding up to this is just describing how Muhammad was. Uh, now, we're going to get in another video by Dr. Abbas where he then talks a little bit about what Muhammad's scrupulosity or OCD was. Let's find out. He was a religious person to begin with. Mm. I mean, he used to pray, go into the, I mean, I'm from very young age. Right. And that is a part of that, uh, some obsessive compulsive traits that he had. Now, then it, it can become so bad. The ritualistic behaviors mm. of the patient that you have to give him the symptom of medicine to, to, to slow it down. I mean, it is totally interfering with life. Uh, I've had many patients like that. And it is mostly with the obsessive compulsive personality. So what, what happened in the life of Muhammad that made you think he became hyper-religious in relation to his epilepsy? He just got more it is not like that he was not to begin with so he it it grew in it grew in and then it became all of life mm. there was nothing besides religion so that's very interesting where he says that muhammad's ocd ended up making basically everything about religion everything took a religious undertone whatnot. Uh, so we're going to continue uh, quickly. Uh, we see in this slide, Gabriel showed Muhammad how to do ablution three times for each body part, like we were talking about ritualistic washing and purity rituals that are told to him by an angel. Uh, when he first received revelation, Gabriel came to him and taught him the ablution. When he finished the ablution, he took a handful of water and then sprinkled his private parts with it. What? So I, I don't even know what to make of this. So the angel tells you to do wudu, and then you sprinkling water over your private parts because the angel told you to. Uh, but, and then he says it three times, and then this is just to show what the wudu is. You got to three times your hands, your arms, each side, and your face, and you got to be particularly paying attention that the water goes all the way around. Then like your ears, this, and then your feet. And it's it's very... Uh, like people have said in the comments, very meticulously detailed in a very structured manner that's kind of weird. You also mentioned about uh, this this whole thing about him learning from Gabriel is also super weird, mm -hmm. right? Like you said, the ghost is coming and like showing him how to do all these things, right? <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Uh now we're going to go to the next slide. The same way Gabriel taught him uh, how to uh, do wudu, he taught him how to pray. Uh, so one day he came in the morning, and then he prayed, and then he came in the afternoon, he prayed. So he literally did five different 
prayers with Gabriel. So Gabriel was like doing these motions with him. And uh, just we just talked about earlier, but just to reaffirm that these movements are not coming from Muhammad sitting there and thinking about, oh my God, this movement makes sense. Oh, this is good. This is good. No, it's his OCD and his OCD movements coming through. And this is what Muslims are doing now. Salah, zikr, all of this is OCD of Muhammad. That's become religion. And just to give you the next uh, is a small like time lapse video of Salah Taravi, just to show you that this is just like you're just standing there up and down, same thing over and over and over again. Let's just play this, yeah. So it just looks like, you know, like this time lapse just to show you, it's just repeating constantly the same thing. Stand, bow, stand, prostrate, stand, bow, stand, prostrate. And when you see it in this form, you're trying to, you kind of realize, okay, this is, it's, it's just bizarre. Uh, and then the fact that he thought that it was sensible to at first make it 50 times a day. <laughs> uh, the fact that it's five times a day on its own is quite a lot, actually. Uh, not a lot of religions have this much. Uh, with that said, we're going to go to the next slide. This is a quite a common one when I was uh, growing up in my time as a Muslim. Uh, the miswak uh, was very common. Muhammad in the hadith would obsessively clean his teeth. Uh, he would uh, clean his teeth so much. Some hadith say that the surah was about to be revealed about it. He'd clean his teeth while dying. And some hadith say that his gums would be damaged or like wounded up from brushing his teeth. And yeah, he said that I would make it obligatory had I felt it wasn't be too hard for you or something. Uh, but yeah, interesting, weird. And then that also ties in with the uh, being offensive to bad smells, bad, uh, you know, the leak smell, bad breath, the leak and the onions. You kind of see these back and forth connections in his life where he projects his own delusions out uh, or like he'll try to hide them, but it'll leak out somehow. Uh, with that said, the next slide is repeating phrases all the time. Uh, you know, 33 times Allah, Waqbar, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah. And there, your Muslims are told to repeat certain phrases certain times. But this is again, literally OCD, like we just said, repeating certain phrases, religious phrases, and whatnot. And then Dr. Ali Sina has a small uh, clip that discusses the OCD of Muhammad. And we'll, I think we'll stop at that. Another this disorder that I found in him is obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, there are many rituals in Islam, how to pray in details. Three times, the number three is so important for Muhammad. Everything should be done three times. Wash your hand three times. Wash your face three times. And there's all these rituals, how to do these things, which has nothing to do with this spirituality or with cleanliness or communication with God has nothing to do with that. What's the meaning of that? Yesterday we had lunch together and uh, before you said, let's do some prayer and you bowed your head and said a prayer right. coming out of your heart completely, nothing rehearsed. Well, that's a prayer. You're conversing with your God. Right. For Islam doesn't mean that thing. It doesn't, such a thing, concept doesn't exist at all. Hmm. There are people even don't understand what they're saying, but they're repeating it constantly, re ritualistically, repeating it something. This is obsessive consult, uh, compulsive disorder, not a prayer. 
all the things that Muslims are doing is rehashing the mental disorder of Muhammad, genuflection, ruku, sujood. What are the meaning of these things? What these things have to do with God and communication with God? It must be dialogue. With, like now, you and I are talking together. That's right. a dialogue we are having. If you are having a dialogue with your God, you don't do all these rituals. But the meaning of these rituals, why? Only obsessive compulsive disorder explain that. Because people with obsessive compulsive disorder uh, look into the forms, are fixated with rituals and with numbers. And that's what Muhammad was. All right. So that was a very interesting conclusion to the OCD section uh, by Dr. Alicina. We had Dr. Abbas talk about it. Uh, from papers that epilepsy, especially temporal, has a high frequency of OCD. Uh, so yeah, interesting section. We figured out that Salah and a lot of the rituals and repetitions in Islam are actually the OCD of Muhammad being rehashed. But yeah, with that, uh, Abdullah Samir, you want to take some questions and concluding remarks? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to end it there because uh, I'm actually really tired, to be honest. I uh, have a bit of a headache myself. But this was a great conversation. So let's, let's we'll summarize the most important points. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to, to finish it, though. The next section is going to be famous cases, famous cases of epileptics that accomplished great things so you know with smashing you know ableist ideas that you know you if you if you have some issue like this you can't achieve great things well apparently you can and we're gonna you, you're gonna be like blown away by some of the examples that uh gondol found yeah um, yeah this, go ahead. Actually, uh, this section runs from slide number 392 to 433 and it's basically case after case and the point of the section will be is to completely completely destroy that idea and that objection to the argument that if muhammad was an epileptic how could he author the quran if muhammad was epileptic how could he create an empire if muhammad was epileptic how could he lead an army or be making laws we will beat that question down so badly that it's going to be embarrassing for that to be ever brought up as an objection why not only because of Muhammad, we also want to show that people with epilepsy and certain disorders like this are not uh, dysfunctional. This idea needs to be undone. Uh, and you will see that, in fact, without some of these, uh, uh, these people and their disorders and genius that resulted from that, we wouldn't have huge amounts of literary or scientific. It's insane. So I'm just going to... Not gonna say any names yet. I'm not gonna show you who they are, but I'm just gonna give you a good idea. So what we're looking at, we got wait, uh, uh, author one of the living one of the living literary giants of our world today, who's has one, two, three, four honorary PhDs, and those are Doctor of Divinity. So they're a level above a normal PhD from McGill University, from University of St Andrews and stuff. Uh, we have them on. Uh, we have poets that are living with uh, epilepsy showing up. We have uh, emperors, not just one, like four emperors, two presidents, it's, uh, five, six politicians on video. Uh, it's going to be wild. It's going to completely change, completely change your outlook on 
on mental illness. You have modern rappers, like very, very famous rappers, musicians, authors. Um, but yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Some of those in this, when they talk about their own epilepsy, they will also reference Muhammad's epilepsy being similar to their own and how Muhammad's epilepsy would have inspired him to create his religion the same way they got inspired by their own epilepsy. Very fascinating. We're going to do one last point refutation of Farid. Knock that down. And mm-hmm. you're going to be in for a shocker. The next section, what we'll do, the next episode, we have to make seven episodes, right? Because <laughs> number seven, seven gates of hell, seven gates of heaven, seven heaven, seven earth, seven skies, <laughs> seven circumambulations. So you're going to make seven. So what we'll do is we have only a few slides left. We're going to do this section next time. And then after that, it'll be done in like 45 minutes or an hour. Then we'll have a discussion and calls. We'll take you guys online. We'll have your call. We'll have a back to back, back and forth. And yeah, then we will uh, conclude this uh, this mammoth of a project finally. Uh, but yeah, I cannot wait. I'm so excited for this last section because it was actually like, the lack section when it comes together, because you're watching this whole presentation with the question in mind. Yeah, but like epileptics or schizophrenics, yeah, they can't achieve this. They can't do this. Yeah, how did Muhammad do this? It's when you see what these people do and when you see that they've achieved literary excellence way beyond Muhammad's wildest imaginations, that's when you realize, okay, maybe a lot of our history was actually guided and formed by these people. And that's an interesting question that's brought up by a couple of neurologists as well. Uh, if you have any concluding questions, comments, we can look at, and then we'll call it a night. Yeah. So just to summarize uh, what we went through today, we covered OCD, which was like right on. You know, basically that 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 one slide was describing Muhammad. Like it couldn't have got better <laughs> than that. You know, um, the violence in the Quran, the 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 fact that from the very first revelation like the amount of red you had on the screen which was threats and you know angry comments and and you know calling out people in his life that were bothering him without mentioning their names although sometimes also mentioning their names like his you know like abu lahab and then of course the very last revelation of quran which was just as bad except when he had power now and he was basically you know taking his power and using it against you know basically a totally disproportionate sort of response to poets like poets and blasphemers which is an imaginary crime but apparently to him that's the worst thing in the world because he's a prophet right so that's what we find and that, that's another you know that's powerful that gets to the point that shows you who this guy was you know connecting it back to the brain it's just it just makes a lot of sense and then of course the hypergraphia how there's examples of other people that, you know, they, they write and write and write, you, you know, the average when you, when we looked at that and, and, and also the fact that OCD also tends to occur with temporal lobe epilepsy, or was it just general epilepsy? That's also very interesting as well, that overlap. Um, so a lot of things that we covered today that was like really good. Um, as you can see, each episode stands up independently on its own, you know, each one has its own, points and and evidences and this one is probably the next one will probably be the best one and you know we'll have time to answer questions and stuff and we'll see how it goes um any any last words uh nothing from my side um just that i can't wait for the next one 
we might do it in a week we might do it earlier uh it's the last thing because i want to get it done with because this is <laughs> for a while too these series and it's uh, it's getting exhausting it takes a mental toll on you as well because you have to sit down and you have to look through and you have to sit down and think okay what would have muhammad caught what went on his head and stuff but uh yeah, no. Uh, keep uh, keep watching the series if you haven't watched it yet. Do watch the first five parts. Uh, you'll be amazed. There's just I'm, I was just shocked. Like there's so much evidence that we've made. I, I how much hours of content and there's every time we have like hundreds of references, like academic, Islamic videos. Like it's like at a certain point you have to ask yourself like it makes yeah, what, more sense. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, finish your point. I thought you done that like what makes more sense like uh do we have more evidence for his epilepsy or do we have more evidence for his prophethood <laughs> and that's what i kept saying in the beginning by the time we're done the tables would have turned so much that the burden of proof literally shifts the burden of proof <laughs> shifts upon the muslims to disprove the epilepsy thing and prove that he was getting revelations because the evidence we've seen is quite explicit in uh, what Muhammad had. Uh, but, yep, yeah, uh, nothing else from my side. I don't know if you have any interesting comments. Yes, there was a question from Sarah. Uh, she said, make sure you ask Abdul Ghanda. Uh, another hadith says that there were most revelations on the day of the Prophet's death. We don't know what surahs were revealed on that day. Uh, what's uh, funny is there's a hadith that says that Muhammad got revelation most profusely the day he died and it also another one says that when he got sick he got more revelation right when he had fever and this isn't i think bukhari or something but the problem is like you said those revelations are nowhere to be found where are those revelations the hadith says the most revelation came on his last day the day he died but then that's the same or does that time frame was the same time where Omar and those people are like, don't write down what Muhammad is saying. He's delirious and stuff. <laughs> it also is a point against yeah. Muhammad's mental health. Like, okay, if he's yeah. getting the most at the end, yeah, that's where to go? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There was one more question from way long ago. I don't know if she's still here, but I, I did note it down because it was a good question from mm -hmm. Mika Malak. Is it known why the hypographia manifests as talking slash writing specifically in rhymes? Uh I don't know exactly why, but like, uh, it's, in fact, we do get into uh, when we get to some of the cases in the next section where a lot of poets show up. Um, so my best bet would be because the Vernikis and the Brokas area are like so in close proximity to the temporal lobe. Once you stimulate the temporal lobe by a, a focal seizure, it could be causing that or a generalized seizure, what ends up happening is, and this doesn't have to be right there and then during the seizure, right? When you have a seizure, your chemicals in your brain to simply put are out of balance. So you'll take a little while to normalize. And because of that imbalance, you can have these urges to write. And then that's, you can also have a psychosis after a seizure where you still hear these voices and thoughts. And we also talked about lingering thoughts, uh, for the rhyming thing, I mean, they're the two papers that I showed earlier. I would definitely say go take their links. And if you can't find them, sit down and read through them because they do try to explain some of the neural uh, links between the lobes, lateralization and stuff, and why it's rhymes that come up. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, words when I would say 
the way your auditory processing might work is when you do try to formula sentences and stuff, similar words are going to pop up in your brain and then your brain kind of has to consciously pick from that pool of words which was from if that framework or that circuit is defective you might have more rhymes pop up in your head could be that something similar to that again it's too uh, too complex to give an answer here mm. all righty um I, and that's a wrap then I, I think we've summarized it well and yeah we'll we'll schedule this as soon as possible i'll announce it on twitter Twitter is the best place to find out when the next one's coming out. And mm -hmm. of course, I will post it on YouTube. So hopefully YouTube will notify. I don't know. I don't know how well YouTube notifies you guys and gals of, um, you know, the next episode. But it'll be we'll, we'll figure out the date and I'll post it on Facebook, Twitter and, uh, you know, give you guys as much notice as possible. So you can show up for the final episode live. And uh, yeah, that'll be a wrap. Uh, thanks, yeah. everyone. And uh, thanks for your donations to those of you who donated. Thanks to everyone that supported the show. Uh, Sarah and Black Angel and others who were in the debate yesterday promoting the epileptic prophet, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, we get more people to watch this episode of the series, and uh, it's it's you know amazing. It's really well done. It's a, mm -hmm. a lifetime of effort, you know, in 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 one or two years, and it's it's <laughs> gonna have the impact of a lifetime. So we're very happy for all of the support and everyone that's sharing the content. You know, uh, we're doing this for the community, and this this is the best it gets. You know, so mm -hmm. thank you guys. Science office. <laughs> All right. Good night. Have a good day. Bye, everyone. <laughs>